You're listening to Ludophilia. I'm Richard Moss. If you listened to last month's show on the search and rescue operation in Second Life, you may remember that Elif Aita has five avatars. Each of them has a distinct personality, appearance, style. They all design clothing, and they all spring from her mind. But only one of them, Alpha, is what you would describe as her conscious self. Alpha is like her. Well, it's something that I kind of got from Max, of course. To quickly recap, Max was one of her friends in Second Life. Aleph, Max and Peter together ran the search and rescue operation. And Max had a lot of avatars. Dozens of them. Because he was the one who was doing it. And uh, I could tell, I could see that he was having a blast being all these different people. Uh, and then uh, the way it actually started is uh, I had a falling out with Max and Peter, which lasted for about a month, which happened maybe a year after we had started playing together. And I got very pissed off and, you know, moved away from Klein, which was our sim, and uh, went to another place. And... And so, you know, I was just me, Alpha, all by myself. And then I said, hmm, you know, I'm going to make myself some playmates. And uh, so that's when I created my first alt avatar. And then I realized that it was wonderful to be someone else, uh, to just have a completely different personality, to look different. Because, you know, my main avatar, Alpha, looks a lot like me which is intentional. I mean, I really worked on making her look like me, but then the second one that I created is is kind of... It's it's a female. It's, she's another female. Uh, she's called Ziamara Ugarjin. She's the opposite of me. I mean, in terms of physical appearance and also in terms of personality, I think. And um, I I just realized that it's it's just wonderful to be someone else for a while, you know, and you really get into it. I mean, that's the whole thing about play. If you become self-conscious about it, you know, if you start to, to think, oh, I'm playing, uh, that's the minute you're no longer playing. While you're playing, you have to really not be thinking about playing. You really have to be playing, 100%. You can't have like this little bit in your the corner of your mind, which is observing you playing. Because when that happens, that's the magic goes. And you're no longer playing. You're doing something else. You're maybe pretending or something, but you're no longer playing. And doing that with multiple personalities, and also especially if you have multiple personalities logged in at the same time so that they're interacting with one another. Not just interacting with each other, but speaking to each other. That's when it really gets to be a lot of fun. This is a common thing in virtual worlds like Second Life, but it has a much older precedent. In literature especially, there's an old tradition of writing under an assumed name. Islamic culture prized the ability to write in different styles under multiple names. J.K. Rowling used a pseudonym a few years ago on a novel that you might remember sold modestly until people found out that Robert Galbraith was in fact 
her, at which point it became a bestseller overnight. The Bronte sisters wrote under the names Cara, Ellis, and Acton Bell. Voltaire is the most famous of around 178 pen names for a Frenchman called Francois-Marie Arouet. English writer, trader, spy, and all-around amazing-sounding guy Daniel Defoe, who wrote Robinson Crusoe, also had close to 200 pseudonyms, including my favourite, Heliostropolis, Secretary to the Emperor of the Moon. And these are just a few examples. At the more extreme end, there's the case of Fernando Pessoa. He was a Portuguese poet born in Lisbon in 1888. This was the era of endemic tuberculosis. The White Plague was dense urban populations, poor sanitation. It spread quickly through Europe. In the poor areas, in the rich areas, it didn't matter. Diseases don't discriminate. And in the 19th century, tuberculosis was the killer. With the cure still decades away, Fernando's father succumbed in July 1893. Just five months later, Fernando's baby brother followed. His mother soon remarried. His stepfather was Portuguese consul in Durban. At the time, Durban was the capital of the British colony of Natal. Nowadays, of course, it's part of South Africa. So little Fernando and his mother sailed to a new, strange land. He later wrote of how this moment shaped his fate. His education came in English, a language that he rapidly mastered. But while he excelled in school, he thrived in school. He had little in the way of friends or hobbies. Alone in this alien land with a, a pale, thin, stooped frame that precluded any kind of physical accomplishment, and with an intellect far beyond his years, Fernando retreated into himself. He read widely, and he read constantly, but his life was a solitary one, so to keep himself company, he would converse with imaginary companions. He called these people non-existent acquaintances. There was a Chevalier de Paz, Dr. Pancrasio, David Merrick, Charles Robert Anon, and probably others too. In 1905, aged around 17, he left his family to study diplomacy back in Portugal. He was home in the familiar surroundings of Lisbon, but here as elsewhere, he felt a stranger. Those imaginary companions remained as he mended through two years of college. One of them, Alexander Search, 
allowed him a means of writing about Portugal as an outsider. His other selves remained as he left college and he self-studied his way to becoming a translator, which is how he made most of his money right up until he died. He also wrote. He wrote essays and poetry and letters, wandering snippets of prose. He wrote in English, wrote in Portuguese, and sometimes in French. He wrote as himself, but more often he wrote as another. He didn't call these others imaginary friends, he didn't call them pseudonyms, he even stopped calling them non-existent acquaintances. They were writers and people unto themselves. They weren't extensions of his personality or aliases to mask his identity, they were tangible beings. Here's Elif Aita again. There were four of them that were very prominent. He called them heteronyms. He wrote under four different signatures, completely different styles. Uh, one of them was a poet, one of them was a political writer, the other one was a novelist. Uh, so they even had different, uh, you know, different uh, areas of expertise or creativity. Uh, but he didn't stop there. He also created completely discrete identities to the extent where, for example, uh, he was very interested in astrology. And he had different horoscopes. He had different birth dates for these uh, four heteronyms. Uh, he probably had them for the others as well. But, you know, the four are the ones that are really well known. And so he had the solar chart made up for each one of them. And he would read their individual horoscopes every day or every so often to, to see, uh, you know, how what would happen or how they were doing or what influences they were coming under and, and things like that. So, and he had very, very, very clear physical descriptions of what these people looked like and their personalities and how they behaved, how they dressed. But he never uh, wrote about that himself. So he would have one heteronym meet another heteronym somewhere in Lisbon. And then that, uh, like for example, he would have, uh, I'm trying to remember the names. Uh, he would have uh, Alberto Cairo meet Alvaro de Campos somewhere, and then he would sit down and write about this man that he had met who was dressed in such and such a way and talked like that, and how and this lengthy exchange and what they had talked about, and and, and you know that's how he developed these characters by writing about each other. The main four were called Alvaro de Campos, Alberto Cairo, Ricardo Reis, and Fernando Pessoa himself. Ricardo Reis was a physician from Porto who wrote about the vanity of life and who opposed the Portuguese Republic. He wanted the king to stay in power, so when the royalists lost out to the republicans, he fled the country. He lived out his days in South America. The dandy, self-described, sensationalist poet Alvaro was born in Portugal in 1890 and trained as a naval engineer in Glasgow. He'd travelled to the Orient and lived a few years in England before he came back to Portugal. 
he liked to feel everything in every way, which is perhaps why he was a bisexual drug addict, and he constantly spoke out against Fernando's public writings in magazines. They would actually quarrel publicly through these letters. He was also reported to occasionally show up in place of Fernando at events. Alberto Cairo was deemed the master of the group. He was a skilled poet and he had a knack for seeing things as they are. He emerged as Fernando was trying and failing to invent a nature poet. The story goes that just as he was giving up on the effort, he suddenly wrote 30 or so poems in a single day, in a kind of ecstasy that he couldn't describe. Fernando called it the triumphal day of his life. This apparition of Alberto Cairo came from the title, The Keeper of Sheep, and immediately Fernando Pessoa felt that his master had appeared within him. Alberto Cairo died young. He was struck down by tuberculosis, just like Fernando's father and brother. And his loss brought out the best in another heteronym, Alvaro, who described every part of his master's being in the minutest of details. He wrote, for instance, that his master's mouth was the last thing you noticed, as if speaking were less than existing for this man. It consisted of the kind of smile we ascribe in poetry to beautiful, inanimate things, merely because they please us. Flowers, sprawling fields, sunlit waters, a smile for existing, not for talking to us. There was also Bernardo Suarez, who wrote the so-called factless autobiography, The Book of Disquiet, which is probably the best-known work to come out of the fevered mind of Fernando Pessoa. It's been described as a melancholy tone, as has most of Fernando's work, and similarly, like the majority of his writings, it was pieced together years after the fact by scholars. Fernando Pessoa died on November 30th, 1935. He was 47. Perhaps he drank too much in his life, or he'd exercised too little. Whatever the cause, whatever the reason, his liver gave out, and he and his many heteronyms ended their lonely existence. They weren't to be celebrated until years later, decades later, as scholars poured over the pages and pages upon pages. There were some 25,574 pages in all. Pages of unpublished writing that were discovered in a wooden trunk in his home after his death. 80 years later, they are still working through these pages. Some are handwritten, others are typed. All of them are difficult to understand. Perhaps things might have been different had he lived 
just two more years, as he'd expected from reading the stars. He'd planned to organise his papers to make sense of the nonsensical, chaotic jumble of writings. Writings by himself as well as hundreds of heteronyms, but he didn't. And now we're left to try to piece together this unsolvable puzzle, to play with them in our own way. And nobody knows exactly why he had all of these heteronyms, and why he amassed such a complicated web of relationships and personalities, all imagined. But it's clear that these heteronyms were more than just companions. They weren't there just to keep him entertained. Elif Aita describes them as co-travellers of a voyage of self-discovery or self-invention, what Pessoa worded as, to pretend is to know oneself. His whole lifetime of writings were not intended to make a great mark on the universe, or even really a little one. They were for him, for his own amusement, because he could. Here's Elif Aita again on how this practice manifested in other writers. Uh, in literature, this is a game or a play that I think a lot of authors uh, have engaged in. I mean, Pessoa is sort of like the pinnacle because uh, he's very uh, upfront about it and he's also done it in a very, very elaborate manner. But um, Stendhal, for example, uh, Stendhal was a pseudonym. I mean, it wasn't the real name of the guy who was writing and, and he had a lot of other pseudonyms. But then uh, at some point he decided to um, uh, write Stendhal's biography. So in order to write Stendhal's biography, he created another pseudonym called Henry Bruyar, who wrote Stendhal's biography. Now Stendhal wasn't a real person and the biography wasn't the actual author's biography. It was an, a, an invented biography that was written by a second invented character. So that's also a very elaborate thing that he that he did. Uh, so because, you know, they uh, this whole thing with pseudonyms, you know, the, there's always this assumption that these people were uh, writing under false names because they were being persecuted or for political reasons or whatever. But that's probably not or, you know, women writing under male names, for example, in England uh, in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, that they they were writing uh, because they were discriminated upon as women. But that's probably not so true, because there's no good reason why Voltaire, for example, would have had 800-plus pseudonyms, that, because that's uh, as many as he had. You know, you wouldn't have done that out of um, just because, you know, uh, of political reasons or whatever. Or... Why would um, George Eliot, for example, who was a woman but wrote under a male name, why would she have done that uh, for um, uh, sexist reasons when you have, at the almost at the same time, you have Jane Austen, who writes as a woman and who's very uh, specific, clear about it, because, you know, at the beginning of her novels, it's actually sort of underscored because... Uh, she, the, the way that, you know, she signs those novels is Jane Austen, a lady. 
So, you know, that's sort of written at the kind of like the, the first page of the novel. It says a lady. So obviously she wasn't having a problem writing as a woman and being published as a woman. Uh, so why would George Eliot have done it? I mean, it's it seems to be a kind of like a very easy explanation to kind of put that down to politics or gender discrimination or whatever. There must have been some kind of other uh, motive there, uh, which... I would assume would have been play the enjoyment of being someone else while you are engaging in creative activity. Sometimes it's just fun to pretend to play inside your own mind and to write as though you are somebody else. Ludophilia is produced by me, Richard Moss. Music for this episode comes from Chris Zabriskie, Lee Rosevier, Kai Engel, New Valleys, and me. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it and leave a review on iTunes. I accept donations through PayPal or Patreon. And every dollar helps me dedicate more time to making these stories better. So head over to my website, ludophilia.net, to find out more about how you can help. You can follow the show on Twitter at Udophilia or follow me at MossRC. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas, proposals, anything, write to me. I love receiving emails and tweets about Udophilia. I'll be back with a new episode around the end of March and I'll let the new valleys take you out with their song, Carry On. See you. Just a-